0: troubled teen industry and you might be aware of this if you have watched Paris Hilton's new documentary on YouTube called This is Paris Um, and before we really begin I just want to say that since I've watched the documentary I've seen a lot of things on the internet talking about like oh Paris Hilton is a narcissist blah 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 like but someone's behavior doesn't negate their abuse history and if someone is making very valid you know complaints about abuse that should be acknowledged and not invalidated um and obviously I'm going to recommend that you watch the documentary if you haven't already I think it's really good especially if you're in the field of psychiatry this is something that I think we all should know about especially if you're working with children and adolescents um so before I watched the documentary, my boyfriend Jonah, who has been on prior episodes and obviously helps with all the audio stuff for this podcast <laughs> is joining us today. It's an understatement. But he
1: <laughs> Yes. Hey. He,
0: he had told me like towards the beginning of our relationship and actually the way this was introduced and I'm just going to say like as a psychiatrist it's very normal for teenagers to engage in certain behaviors. And it's actually, the data suggests that um, teenagers who have some risky behaviors generally have better mental health than those who have none. So part of what's typical for someone who is in their adolescence or college age is to try marijuana. And Jonah, the reason this all came up is we, he was 36 years old when we met and he was telling me, no, I've never tried marijuana in my life. And his explanation for this was, well, when I was a teenager, um, I'll get into the story in a little bit, but overall he was saying when he was a teenager, he went to like a treatment program that had a lot of teenagers who use drugs heavily. And so I think it was, sort of described as a scared straight experience to avoid any substance use um, because of what he saw amongst the other teens he was in this program with. So basically he told me when he was 14 years old he was really depressed and uh, sleeping through high school not attending classes so his parents ended up sending him to two different programs um for a period of time that like he had like I already mentioned were primarily for teens with like substance use issues um but the way he described this to me at the time made it sound like a neutral and mildly positive experience because he uh, so didn't really say too many negative things about the experience but was just letting me know how it impacted him um but i think i was actually sort of confused at the time because i didn't i was like something about this story doesn't sound right but i couldn't like put my finger on it but if someone was telling me that an experience wasn't completely negative for them um obviously i was going to listen to that so When I started watching Paris Hilton's documentary, um, you know, obviously what's going to come up is that she was in these same types of programs that Jonah was in as well, but the way she told the story was very much different than how he had told me his story at that time. So she explains in her documentary that, um, when she was a teenager, she was partying, she was ditching school, She says at the time she felt her parents were scared and didn't want their reputations to be ruined. So their idea behind this was to send her away to be hidden. So first she went to an outdoor wilderness program, which were also referred to as emotional growth schools. And she says this was quote, in the middle of nowhere. And her experience with this outdoor wilderness program was um, doing constant manual labor getting yelled at boot camp style she hated it and reports that she attempted to run away but she was caught by staff and she said quote they beat the hell out of us in front of everyone so she says that after this she was sent to numerous quote emotional growth schools called Ascent, Cascade, um, sea and she attempted to run away from all of them and at that point, that I guess this dragged on for months, and she was begging her parents to just let her come home. She was like, I won't party anymore. I'll be good. And then, like, later in the documentary, she goes back to how she first ended up in these places. And I think at this time, I was like, oh, my God, like, Jonah told me he did some outdoor wilderness program. And it, her experience was she was just... Uh, Presenting it in such a negative way that I started like texting him while I was watching this and I was telling him what I was seeing on the screen so she says when she was first taken to the first outdoor wilderness program um, she said she was sleeping and in the middle of the night two large men came into her room she thought she was being kidnapped and they were like dragging her out of her bed so she started screaming for her mom and dad to help her And she saw her parents just, like, standing by their door crying. They wouldn't tell her what was happening. So this is how this whole experience started, which is obviously super negative. And she says that to this day she has nightmares about this whole being, you know, believing that she's being kidnapped from her bed. And so she says that because her situation um, of, like, running away from all these programs, she ended up at the like i guess strictest um maybe high considered like the last resort school and that's called provo Cannon school and she says this is the worst of the worst there was no getting out of there i guess it has like a, a lot of fencing around the school so there's no real way to escape um and she described her experiences there as sitting in a chair staring at a wall all day long getting yelled at or hit and she said staff seemed like they enjoyed torturing children and seeing them naked would watch them shower and so on um that polypharmacy there was the norm she recounts being prescribed multiple meds at once including med stabilizers and she was concerned because some of the kids there seemed like zombies so she started shaking her pills and for this she got solitary confinement and solitary confinement at Provo in School involved stripping off all her clothes and sticking her in a solitary confinement space for 24 hours. And it was very cold in there. She didn't get any food. And she reported that some people who they, I guess they were punishing even more intensely, were placed in straitjackets. So she was at PCS for 11 months until she turned 18. And the whole time she reports that while she was there, she got through it by fantasizing and she her fantasy was that she would become so successful her parents could never control her again Um, and she reports continued trust issues with others to this day due to her parents doing this to her and so towards the end of the documentary um, it shows like a group of girls who went to Provo Cannon school with Paris I guess they're all late 30s now Um, And they sort of have like a support group and they're speaking out about this because these schools still exist today. And what one of them says that I thought was interesting was she said a lot of survivors wake up after 15, 20 years and then they are ready to talk about it. And so what all of these women seem to share was, you know stating that staff had abused them, having continued nightmares to this day. A lot of them reported that they have an issue with picking abusive partners, at least for a time after that experience, or in Paris's case, continued to this day, uh, due to the normalization of abuse that they experienced, and it sort of blurred the lines between love and abuse for them. And notably, just in the past three years, I guess, Provo Cannon schools still exist, and there were 56 police reports of abuse, including 25 sexual offenses. And some of the other things that the girls talked about was uh, the lasting impacts from their time period was They feel that they're a lot more reserved than they would have been otherwise. They feel like they've repressed a lot of memories. They remember being forced to clean, force-fed, being cut off from their friends and family, witnessing significant emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, and worrying that everything happened to them was all their fault. So while I was watching this documentary, I was texting Jonah and I was like, these people are saying this abuse and they're describing these things that to me just sound horrible. And then um, he was like, oh, what school did Paris go to? And I'm like, Provo Cannon School. And he's like, that's where I was. So that's when things sort of got a little wild when I was watching this documentary. Um, so I'm going to let Jonah tell his story, which has a lot of parallels to Paris's story and then some ways in which their story was different, but both are pretty terrible. So,
1: um, yeah, I don't really know the best place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess I could talk about what happened that got me there and like sort of a, like the, the timeline. Um, but feel free to interrupt me if you want me to like, if I'm not being clear or if you want to know more about something I'm saying.
0: Well, you could even start with when I was like texting you and then how you went back and rethought about, but yeah, obviously we want to hear your full story, but if that yeah. is easier.
1: Well, it's something that like, obviously, you know me pretty well <laughs> and you know that I'm a, someone who tries to, um, stay pretty and in, in tune with myself and, um, I pride myself on having worked as a person to try to be self-aware and in touch with my feelings. This is something that, uh, hasn't, I haven't really thought about it a lot in a long time. Um, and so it was just, I mean, at the very, at, at first it was just kind of surreal because I was, when you, when I was like, Oh yeah, where did you go? And you're like "Provo in school. And I was like, that's where I went. I was like, kind of blown away and like, and when you start Googling things about the exact two programs that I was at, the other one was Aspen Achievement Wilderness Program. Um, there's been these crazy stories about abuse towards kids and all these things that have happened for the last 15 or something years. And I had just never seen it. I had never heard of it. So I started to feel really weird. (laughs) Um, And I started to think back on the things that I'd experienced and explore them through a different lens because I think there were elements of my experience that were probably a little bit more unique to me just because of my situation. Um, My situation had some unique qualities to it that uh, actually probably fairly similar to Paris in a certain way. But when I was there, most of the kids were there for different reasons and through different means. So, And I'll get to that in a second. But basically, yeah, like as you said, I was a depressed 14-year-old kid going to high school. Um, I slept through like three or four months of school. The school got involved um, and was putting a lot of pressure on my parents to do something about it. And the guidance counselors at my school recommended some education counselor. And my parents took me to the education counselor and, you know, it was kind of standard thought process and, and, you know, uh, crossing off the things it could be to figure out what might be going on. So they did like IQ tests and all that kind of stuff. Um, And when they figured out that that wasn't what the issue was, like I wasn't struggling and finding it difficult and therefore avoiding school, uh, they were like, I mean... Part of it was kind of the opposite. I was kind of not into school. I also socially didn't like a lot of kids in my school or feel like I belonged there. Um, and you know the whole culture of my town and everything is a whole different story. But um, basically uh, the school was and was threatening to get the law involved because I was under the age of 16, I was legally truant, and therefore it was my parents' responsibility. And, and it was, up, you know, it, it sat on their shoulders that I wasn't in school, and that was illegal. So what I, what I come to think now is that the education counselor in the 90s, this, these teen treatment programs were all the rage. They'd heard about them. They'd send kids there, blah, blah, blah. For all I know, they, sh- they were getting kickbacks from the programs, which wouldn't surprise me at all. And that's what I was, they recommended I, that happen. My parents mentioned it to me like oh we think we want to have you go to this camp or this program where they can help you and and figure out what's going on and do and feel better and I was like no I don't want to go and I and the way that they had couched it to me um from the outset was like it made me feel like I had a choice um a few months later when I was sitting in my I mean again I was an insomniac I wasn't sleeping um I was sleeping during school hours not during the night so My version of Paris' story is that I was sitting on my computer on eBay in 1997, (laughs) right when eBay started, and I was uh, poking around on the Internet, and then uh, there was a knock on my door. My parents peeked in and said that they loved me and were crying and upset, and then they disappeared, and two giant muscle dudes came into my room and said they were taking me somewhere and to get better and... I don't remember the exact language that they used. There was, they themselves were not being threatening, but just the mere fact that it was like two big muscle bound guys that were like 6'5", like 260 pounds of like pure muscle. (laughs) made me. I mean, I I think that, I don't know if I realized this at the moment, but like I know at some point during the whole process, I obviously, I realized once I got into the programs and learned that some of the other kids, when they had that same thing happen, Um, they would try to run, they would try to fight back and they basically need to send guys that are like, you know, physically large enough and in control enough that they can handle potentially a kid trying to get violent or run away or honestly, like just like that threat is supposed to make a kid like kind of snap in line and do as they're told. Right.
2: Yeah. It's just like a, it's kind of like an implication, you know, like you don't, first of all, you don't know what's going on, where you're going, what this has to do with. Um, I feel like. I mean, I guess, you know, we talk about how this all, if this works and if it's really the best way, but I mean, it's an interesting approach, just kind of yeah. they, what they represent. I mean,
1: if I think about, I mean, my parents are very loving, sweet people and mm-hmm. they felt, and I've talked to them about this now recently because of all this. Um, and they reiterated a lot of what they told me back then, which is, and I was trying to get like more transparent like, what did people say? Like, literally, what were the words people used? Blah, blah, blah. But basically, my parents were being coerced into this. They, my mom felt that if they didn't send me to this place that they were being suggested to send me to, that they would basically lose their rights to me. <laughs> like, it would go beyond their control. Like, if the law gets involved, essentially, what can happen is you can go to court uh, in the 90s when these things were happening very clearly with what your, what your people are writing about online. Um, and what I experienced out in Utah, uh, the court's probably going to rule, you know, basically be like, Oh, this is like an unruly kid and they're going to get in trouble and we have to set them on the right path kind of shit. And my parents didn't want to get the court involved because if, and ultimately that was a good decision. Um, and I can get into why, but, and, and I don't even know that they knew why, but it just ended up being a good decision. Anyways, these, these guys, these big muscly dudes, were actually really quite nice. And I didn't try to run. I, didn't, I, I was properly intimidated. <laughs> um, I was like, should I pack my clothes? They're like, no, you won't need them because you're not, you're not going to be gone that long, which was just a lie. Um, and it turns out that was because they were taking me to Utah, to the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the desert, um, where it's basically boot camp. And you arrive there, and they have like a little holding area where they give you a duffel bag or tarps and and tarps and all your like basically all the necessities that you need for camping and clothing and all the all those things. So basically, that's why I didn't need clothing or any of my stuff because they were going to give it to me. And then I still at that point had like bought what they were selling me. I'm not going to be there that long. Blah blah blah. And then they gave me all this stuff and they drove me uh, in a truck out into the middle of the desert where I saw like a fire burning. And that was like the group uh, of kids and counselors that I was gonna be with. So then they, they um, dropped me off and like introduced me to the group and then they left. And then the counselor says something about like it's an eight week program. You're gonna be here for two months. This is what you've gotta do. And like that's the moment when I really freaked out because I didn't know any of that. And now I'm in the middle of Utah and in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> And that's when I realized that um, I had no control. I had no in It It didn't matter what I wanted. Um, that's where I was going to be. And I never, like, in my thoughts, I never, like, turned on my parents or blamed them or thought that they were, like, abandoning me or anything. But I also knew that, like, um, it was a conflicting idea because I also never thought they would do something like that. Um, And again, like, I've talked to them about it, and I don't think that they were very happy about doing it either. Um, But that's when I realized I had no control. So basically what happened is the whole Aspen story is crazy. And I was at Aspen for like six or seven weeks before being transferred to Provo. Basically, my experience at Provo, and I'll talk more about that too was not as insane as Paris is personally. All the, pretty much most of the things that she's talking about, I saw all around me. And looking back through the lens of a, of a grown adult, I'm like, holy shit, like that's exactly what was, <laughs> that was what was going on to all these kids. Um, and it was a lot of fear and anxiety and tension. Um, what happened to me at Aspen was actually criminal. So I was a chubby teenager and I weighed, I don't know, like 220 pounds or something when I was 14. And I went to this program and the Aspen Achievement program is like you're walking 10 or 15 miles a day in the desert. You don't know where you are. They don't want you to know where you are. You don't know what time it is. They don't want you to know what time it is. Um, You don't know you're getting communicate anything that you hear about your parents or what they're saying is coming through a therapist that comes out and meets the team and like talks to individual kids like once a week. And if they have like, if they have to talk to a bunch of kids, you might not get time with them every week. So basically like at that point I was walking 10 or 15 miles a day in the desert. Um, I had asthma, I was overweight and I was a really picky eater. Like I, and I still am like, I have serious mental hangups about food that are very abstract and illogical, and you can't reason with them. And you know, like people are always like, oh, well, you can't, if this ingredient is in this dish, you can't taste it. And I'm like, I don't care if I can taste it. I know that it's in it. So I'm just very strange with food, and I always have been. But what, one thing that Paris spoke to and that I've seen a lot online is that the people in control that are like the, the, the communication point, between the touch point between the kids and their parents are extremely manipulative, and they say one thing to the kids. They say one thing to the parents. The kids are like saying, you know, like when the kids are like, oh, this is what's happening to me. The therapists will like have like apparently in some cases they hang up the phone. So the like kid can't say that to the parents. Calls. Yeah. And they call the parents back and they're like you just have a bad kid and they're they're just rebelling and protesting and they're doing saying whatever they can to get to go home. Right. They're manipulating you. Um, which is strange because I'm a very sensitive person. I was a very sensitive, introverted kid. My parents knew that I wasn't that kind of person. Right. But, but basically, I wouldn't eat because all of the food that they were giving us were, were, was stuff that I thought was disgusting, like spam and like other things. And at that point in my life, I thought macaroni and cheese was disgusting. And that was like half the meals around the campfire. And then at a certain point, I was so hungry, I'd, I'd be like, I, have told, I remember telling the counselor, like, hey, if you give me some of the macaroni and cheese before you put spam in it, maybe I'll eat some. And they told me they can't because no one can get special treatment. And in the meantime, in six weeks in the desert, I lost 40 pounds. They had to come out two or three times and put an IV in my arm with saline solution because I was dehydrated. Because all the water that we were drinking, part of the whole guide through the desert is they would basically be walking to where there was the next place that had water. And sometimes that water source was like a, basically a big puddle with buffalo shit in it. Like there was people that there was like, um, bison owners that herded, herded bison in that part of the desert. And there'd be like buffalo bison cow pies, like in the middle of the water. And I don't know many 14 year olds that want to drink that. (laughs) Um, So we would put like iodine in the water so that we wouldn't get like giardia and get sick. And someone that was already super mentally hung up on things like that, like, what do you expect to happen? (laughs) So I was like extremely dehydrated. In five or six weeks, I literally ate one apple and one orange because at a certain point when you haven't eaten, it actually, as people know, it gets hard to eat. Um, Then one day we were walking and they kept me out there, which is neglect. It's criminal, like having a 14 year old kid. It, like, even if I was protesting and being manipulative, like I was in physical harm, like danger, like that's not right. Yeah. And one day, and when, and by the way, this whole time I had counselors and therapists screaming in my face that I was the most manipulative son of a bitch they'd ever met. Um, that I was evil, that I would be so evil to my own body. Um, I had a counselor that was Native American and I've always had a deep respect for like the spirituality of Native Americans and this guy's in my face screaming in my face telling me that I'm evil and like I have the devil in me and that I'm going to grow up and be evil to my family and my children and that he feels sorry for whoever is in my family in the future. To a, he's saying this stuff to a 14 year old kid and they're telling my parents that I'm manipulative. They're telling me that I'm manipulative. The therapist told me that my parents said that If I didn't cooperate, they'd put me in a lockdown facility where I was in a cell for two years, which they never said. He was telling my parents that I said a bunch of stuff that I never said, just lying in both directions. And meanwhile, a lot of the kids there had been like, like, like Anna was saying, like Paris was talking about how she was like, you get like shuffled around to different programs. Well, a lot of the kids at Aspen, that was the first place I went but they had been in multiple programs and they had met other kids that were in multiple programs. And there was all these stories about these facilities that you would go to if you didn't behave and and cooperate. Um, The worst of which was always what I had heard at that point in time was in Samoa, where you live like on a hut in the beach and like eat dead rats, which I guess is pretty literal now that I've read about it. And like the sexual abuse and physical abuse is rampant in the Samoan place. So I'm thinking like, my therapist is like, "Oh, your parents are gonna send you to these places," and I'm and like, I don't know. At that point, anything's possible because I'm there, and I didn't ever think I'd be in that situation to begin with. So the fact that I'm being threatened with what could be Samoa or a cell or whatever, it's pretty scary. <laughs> Especially when like you, I had a nice childhood. I became depressed, and all of a sudden, I'm ripped out of it, and like the whole world has done a one eighty. So. One day we were walking through the desert and, um, we were like kind of going down a hill. Um, we like kind of went up this like kind of small mountainous area walking down a hill and I put my arm up on a big rock to leverage myself so that didn't slip going down the hill and a rock, like at least a yard in diameter, uh, was very loose and it fell on my foot like this giant fucking rock. And basically pinned me under the rock, and the counselors had to run up and, and lift the thing off of me, and my entire ankle swelled up to the size of like a softball. Apparently, they told my parents they thought that I did it intentionally. That's how fucked up this is, um, which clearly I didn't. And at that point, they had to take me out of the desert. They rushed out a car to take me out of the desert and take me to a hospital to get x-rays. And uh, Since I was already out and I hadn't been eating and I'd been dehydrated, they took me to a a child psych ward at a hospital like three or four hours away, which I don't remember where it was, but I've now read things online that some of those facilities were owned by the same people, so that's possible. Um, And they took me to this child psych ward where I was there for like a day and a half or two days, and they were uh, serving—I'm vegetarian now, but I wasn't (laughs) then— They were serving, like, chicken fingers and scrambled eggs, things that I ate. Like, finally, after, like, six or seven weeks, there's food I could eat. So what did I do? I ate. And then the doctor's like, there's nothing wrong with this kid. He's eating just fine. So they brought me back out. They brought me back out. They thought, like, I was done protesting or something, which...
0: And and even when that happened... You know, were you getting like, cause you could have easily gotten like refeeding syndrome or Wernicke's the like, cephalopathy?
2: I was wondering if yeah. you got thiamine first.
0: Did they do <laughs> any medical treatment? Because no. the, you wouldn't go straight to a psych ward when you haven't been eating for six weeks straight. Yeah, they you have should to medically go straight to it. medical floor. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Nope, they yeah. did not. Nope, none of that. And they picked me up and I hadn't heard, me, I'm a huge. I'm a musician, and I'm obsessed with music, and I always have been. And I remember they picked me up, and they were driving me back to Aspen and, like, listening to the radio, and I was like, music! And they were playing, like, songs that I really loved, and I was like, it was like a moment of, like, happiness and all the craziness to hear some of my favorite songs. And then I got back to the program, and they told me that, you know, basically I'm an asshole, and I'm evil, and I fucked up, and... They're gonna bring me back out into the desert, and I was gonna have a 24-hour watch from two counselors that were just gonna be with me. That I wasn't going back to my group with all the kids that I had like become a little bit friendly with, and that I was starting the whole that once I agreed to cooperate and showed proof with those two counselors that I could cooperate, that I would restart the program from scratch. Oh. That, I, that that the first six weeks that I had gone through meant no, basically meant nothing. And that I would restart it and that by the way you'll keep restarting it until you cooperate and do the whole program so after and then they they put me back out in the desert and told me that and my reaction guess what tell me for six weeks I'm protesting I finally did and I sat still on my ass and I wouldn't move and they were you know basically screaming at me half of the day while I was sitting on my ass in the tent just I wouldn't move I was like I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I came this far. I've been through all this, and you're just going to keep restarting me? I'm not moving. So they took me out of the desert. They put me in a holding house because there's a separate part of the Aspen Wilderness Program that was like a big house full of people. And, um, well, they figured out what to do with me, which was to bring me to Provo. So basically, and, and before I talk about Provo, again, I entered Aspen as a 220 pound kid, I left weighing about 180 pounds in five, in like six weeks, I lost 40 pounds. I was dehydrated multiple times. I almost had my foot crushed by a rock and had them telling my parents that I did it on purpose. I was being called evil. I was being told that when I grew up, I was still going to be evil and be evil to my family and children Uh, they took away like a big walking stick that I had carved for my dad and told me I could use it as a weapon. They told me, they lied to me. They lied to my parents. They told me that I would stay out in the desert until I cooperated and ended everything by the book on their eight week program. So that was my Aspen experience. And I ended up at Provo for six months and When I got home from Provo, I started at a new private school because I was starting school like a month late. It was like October uh, of 98. And uh, two or three weeks into starting that school, my dad was driving me to school in the morning. And we would stop at this convenience store and get like a, a snack in the morning. Like he'd get coffee and I might get like a juice or like a pastry or something like that. And I bought like a liter thing of orange juice and drank the whole thing. So then I got home that day and he was like, that was weird that you drank all that orange juice this morning. I want to check your blood sugar because my dad's type one diabetic and my blood sugar was like 260. So I don't know if everyone listening knows how diabetes works. Uh, type one is genetic and usually type one comes out the, when it's like diagnosed and your body kind of goes through that change. It's usually spawned by like a major change in your body chemistry or some kind of body trauma. So like sometimes people get the flu and then they're diabetic or they have surgery on their back. And then three months later they're diabetic or something like that. Well, for me, it's walking through the desert for six weeks, 15 miles a day, not eating any food, losing 40 pounds in six weeks. And six months later I was diabetic. So genetically you can make the argument that at some point in my life it would have happened anyway, you know, either way. Um, would it have happened when I was 15 or 14? Probably not. Most people that are type one, it's either juvenile, like when they're, they're either born with it or, you know, they're diagnosed when they're like three or four or seven or something like that. Or it's like in their sixties or seventies. Um, my father was diagnosed in his late thirties. So even if I was a genetic copy of my dad, that's 20 years of type one diabetes screwing up my body that I may have otherwise not had. And I, at this point, hold them pretty much almost entirely responsible for that. Um, no other, I mean, I was a chubby teenager, but, you know, I was healthy. And there, just me being, you know, a little bit overweight like that was not going to be the, the sole cause. I mean, usually people that are overweight go to type two first, first, right? Or they're mm-hmm. borderline type yeah. 2 and they, they fix their diet and they get exercise and they can actually um, escape it. But I went straight to type 1 from that body trauma. And that's just a fact. It's It's, a mixture
2: of genetics and environment. And when you have the environmental triggers and you're genetically predisposed, I mean, that makes perfect sense.
1: Right. But again, like my dad, I I don't remember the exact reasons why it may have come out with him, but he had like neck surgery. And then not long, I think not not long after that, he was diagnosed with type 1. But again, my dad was like the age I am now. And even if I'm genetically predisposed to it and it's going to happen sooner or later, 20 years, like you want it to happen as, later as, po- as late as possible Yeah. <laughs> because the longer you have it, the more damage it does to your body. And I'm, so far, I'm in pretty good shape. I haven't really had any, any real complications from diabetes, but will I? Yeah, definitely. And if that could have been, you know, if I could have started that quote unquote damage At age 37 instead of age 15, that's it. Pretty much means I'm gonna, I'm not gonna live as long because I was diagnosed when I was 15. And I think that that what they did is criminal. I was a 14 year old kid. And even if they were right and I was an evil protesting son of a bitch, I should not have been, it should not have been allowed to let that happen. Even if it meant giving me everything I wanted. And treating me with special treatment, like, you can't let a kid starve in the middle of the desert. You just can't do that.
0: And Um, type 1 diabetes, specifically, in general, takes about 10 years off of someone's life. Yeah. So.
1: And the longer you have it, the more that that can go up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so PCS was a different story because. So, first of all, I think that from everything I've heard, including Paris's story. I think the girls' campus was a lot worse. Um, And I definitely, it sounds like it attracted probably male counselors that were interested in whatever sexual trouble that they wanted to cause. Like whether it was seeing teenage girls naked or assaulting them or raping them or whatever. We had pretty much the same, um, all the same crazy shit happened at the boys' campus. And actually, I was there at the same time she was, and we had co-ed days where the girls' campus would come over in a bus, and we'd get to, like, socialize with them outside under the supervision of counselors. So for all I know, I saw her there. I have no idea. But um, my experience was that I was not court-ordered, and that's what I was going to talk about that I mentioned earlier. Basically, if if the state gets involved and you're court-ordered, it's now very, I mean, it was clear then because I would hear kids talk about it. Like when I entered that program, there was like 17 year olds that had got there when they were just about 16. They're like, yeah, I'm going to be here. Like my, um, my, not nah, I don't remember what they're called my social worker or whatever that was like in charge of their case with the, with the state would, would straight up tell them they're not leaving there till they're 18. Basically those, those schools and those treatment centers are just, they won't, there's like a, there's like a like a framework where you started a certain status and then you can reach the top status and if some people were court ordered and and literally the the order said that they could not leave until they were that top status for x amount of time um and without trouble and like we and we had treatment plans and so on um i wasn't court ordered and i think they what they did is they took advantage of that and they purposefully kept kids back from moving through the system and and making the next status so that they'd stay there longer. Cause it was extremely expensive. It was like, I want to say it was like, like 10 or $15,000 a month or something that my parents paid for me to be there. And also I was, when I was there, I turned 15 while I was there. I got there when I was 14. And at the time I was like the youngest kid in that program. I wasn't court ordered. I wasn't there for drugs. I wasn't there for breaking the law. I wasn't, doing out like there were kids there that were like in the bloods and crips and stuff like that um I was a pretty innocent kid like I was just depressed I was just sad I didn't I had a temper problem at that point in time because I was confused but I never like really hurt anyone I, I think I might have threatened to when I was you know at 14 and depressed and everyone was on my back about sleeping through school I probably threatened people and I lost my temper but I never like really hurt anybody. I never was, I wasn't getting into trouble. I was just sleeping.
2: Well, um, Anna, I mean, again, not to step on anyone's heels, but I just finished studying for boards. So I feel like this stuff is just in the forefront of my mind, but isn't it true that yeah. depression in children uh, can manifest as irritability, um, yes. more so than the hypoactive kind of psychomotor. Well, yeah, but
0: even, even then, like, you can be a normal teenager with zero issues and be irritable. Oh, sure. It's not something that needs to, like, <laughs> you don't need to be, like, locked up over it. You, yeah. know? Right. you don't well, even every, necessarily need to be medicated or anything.
1: No, every teenager goes through growing pains and adjustments to being an adult and, l- like, seeing the world for what it is and not having that innocent outlook that you have when you're a little kid. And and it's a, it's it's like, it's absolutely fucking cliche for teenagers to be confused and figuring things out. Like what's, there's nothing abnormal about that. And I was doing it. And and I mean, maybe not going to school was concerning for whatever reason to people, obviously, but like, I think that in a sense I was doing it in kind of like the least harmful way possible. I wasn't, I wasn't breaking laws. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't getting into trouble. I was just asleep. Right. And so I think that I was handled differently there by the staff because they knew that I was not court ordered. And, like, yeah, they made me strip naked and like bend over and cough when I got there in like a cold shower because they told me that I could be smuggling drugs in, which was really fucking embarrassing and I felt awful. But, like, I don't, I I think they knew that, like, theoretically, if I communicated to my parents that they were doing something fucked up to me, that they could, they would basically just lose money. Um, but when I think back on it now, like, I remember thinking, like, oh, there's kids acting out. I think I, I think I just understood out of the gate there that it was a scared straight boot camp mentality. That it was, you know, kind of the same problems that we're having with cops right now in our culture. Where it's, like, people taking out their issues on other people and, like, mm. being power hungry or uh, just taking out their tempers or insecurities on people. Well, in this case, it was counselors doing that to kids.
2: Abusive power.
1: Yeah. And I made up my mind right when I got there that I was going to attract as little attention to myself as possible. I bought the threat, and I lived under that fear. And the whole time I was there, I had a I. I'm a, I, very, I, I, very am, I very much am self-contained, like even now when I'm stressed out, sometimes I don't even realize I'm stressed out until I get like a migraine. Mm. And then I'm like, oh, I must be stressed out. So back then, like I was deeply afraid. There was like a system of infractions, so like class one through class five. And I think the whole time I was there, I got a class one like twice for maybe like saying shit or something. And I think I got one class two because we were every night we'd go to the cafeteria And file in, and there's like, a snack bar. And then at a certain point, the counselor would stand up and tell everyone to stop talking and, like, file, like, very neatly into line without talking to get back in line to go back out to our units where we slept. And I think at one one time, a a kid and I were joking around, and, like, right in the middle of us joking around, the counselor said everyone had to stop talking. And I was, like, laughing, and I got a class, too. And I forget... I forget what happened one time. Basically, like, it's at their discretion. Like, I could say shit and get a class one, which is effectively a warning. Um, I could say shit and someone could get mat- be mad and give me a class three and send me to investment. And that's what Paris was talking about. So investment was basically a room with benches all around on the walls and a desk with a giant Samoan dude. Which, by the way, most of the Samoan guys, there were actually really nice. Some of them were very sweet. Um, but some of them were assholes and everyone knew it. And, and you knew who to be super, you know, in line or whatever around, like there was guys with reputations that everyone knew that that counselor was a jerk and that they were mean and that they would take any excuse to fuck with you. And those were the guys that were in charge of investment. So if you went to investment, I forget why, but for one, one time I was in investment for like a couple of hours and I basically just sat on a bench staring at the wall for three or four hours and those get, once you're in that once you are in investment they look for any excuse to fuck with you they treat everyone in there they're like they're like an awful human being like they assume that because you're here you're a piece of shit and they'll take any excuse they can to fuck with you and they basically try to get kids to react and then when kids react they escalate it and then you have two big samoan dudes on top of you And someone apparently would run in and shoot like sedatives in their ass. And I and I used to hear stories about that all the time. It never happened to me because, again, I was quiet and I kept to myself and I was so deathly afraid of anything like that happening to me. And but I would, you know, there'd be a kid in the unit that would swear or that would talk at the wrong time or would uh, get up to go pee in the middle of the night. And the counselor didn't like that they were getting up and walking around without permission and they would go to investment and they'd get a class three or a class two, or they'd say, go cool off an investment for a few hours just to basically to, as a threat and they'd go to investment. And then basically once you're investment in investment, the counselors would fuck with them until they reacted. And then they'd use the reaction as fuel to make it worse. And then before you know it, no one in the unit would see that kid for a week or two. And then a week or two later, you'd find out, oh, so-and-so is coming out of investment today. And then they like, you'd come back from school and the kid would be there. And they'd just be like sitting in the corner quiet. And now like looking back on it, I'm like, wow, those kids were completely fucking traumatized. Like that's what I was seeing when those kids came back to the unit. It's like sitting in a corner quiet, like not wanting to talk to anybody and acting like almost like PTSD, like a noise would like make them like, like look up and around. Like I remember seeing shit like that. It never happened to me. Um, and again, I don't exactly know why, like no one chose to take out those insecurities on me. No one chose to make me a target. Maybe it's because I was not court ordered. Maybe it's because I they knew that I was the youngest kid there and they thought I was innocent. I, I have no idea. Uh, I, but a lot of what I was feeling when Anna and I started talking about um, my experience there, I just felt so weird. And I was like, I feel so weird. And she's like yeah, it's, it's basically survivor's guilt because you were in a situation and you didn't even necessarily know, like you had ideas and like there was a threat of that and it was happening, but like you didn't experience it firsthand. So like, I feel almost guilty. Like I couldn't do anything to stop it or to at least like, um, have empathy for those kids or like try to be like kinder to them or helpful to them, you know, but also, I feel strange that it happened to all these people around me and it didn't happen to me and and there's like a certain amount of first of all it's crazy from a selfish point of view I guess that like I'm like wow all these things could have happened to me like at each moment that I was there I was just like a little trigger away from this happening to me I could have done one little thing differently and been thrown in a cell for two days without food naked I could have done one little thing differently and been tackled by a 500 pound Samoan guy and had some kind of sedative shot in my ass. I could have done one little thing differently and been beaten the hell out of. Um, Again, like, I don't remember things being, I didn't see those things firsthand, but I do know that, like, there was kids that came in that were really sweet, good kids. And we would go through, that we were in, like, the beginning stages of the program together. And then later, as I advanced through the program, I kept hearing all these bad things about them and all the trouble that they were getting into. And you know, like kids were acting out because they were being prompted to, like kids were doing sexual things with each other, and like that would like basically keep them an investment in long term forever <laughs> um, and I think that that was all a very confusing time for those kids, and I think that the counselors were targeting them, and I know that the counselors were physical with them. I knew it then. Um, I don't think that I bought into the idea that it was right. I was just too busy being scared. Like I was too busy not wanting to have it happen to me. Um, and I do like, I don't, I'm not like Paris in that like for years after I had nightmares about like people coming into my room in the middle of the night, taking me away necessarily. Like maybe I had some of that, but like, I just felt like it created a lot of anxiety for me. Um, And for years after, like, I do, I did have dreams where, like, I was in a situation that I couldn't control, where, like, I was with the threat of losing control over my own life. Um, And, like, basically being put into some situation I didn't want to be in. Like, I did have a lot of dreams like that. Um, I mostly, at this point, like, now that I've told you, like, most of the things from, like, a high level, like... I mean, I could tell you for days all the different things that I saw and experienced at Provo. Um, But, like, from a high level, like, Aspen was what really, was really awful to me. Provo was a tremendous amount of intimidation and fear. Um, I think I just got lucky. Or I was in the right situation where they, I was the kind of uh, case that they weren't going to target. Being self-funded, being 14, uh, not being like a drug user or whatever, not being in a gang, not having police officers that had consulted with them first saying that I got arrested for things. Like, I think there was some amount of sensitivity to the fact that my case was a little bit different. Hmm. Um, But I definitely can tell you that, you know, there was a lot of components to that situation. Like gym class was basically like army basic training. For a chubby 14-year-old being told to do these physically impossible exercises. The, the gym class teacher was like a slave driver. Um, things like that and that blew my mind, that made me dread that day when I would have gym class. That made me like fear that day. <laughs> um, or waking up in the middle of the night and asking to go to the bathroom and going to the bathroom and seeing kids in the hallway that had been torn out of their beds to be on sleep watch. And like sleeping on the floor in the hallway, which aside from the fact that like, you know, whatever you want to say about that, like a lot of it was actually intended to embarrass them in front of the other kids and scare the other kids into behaving. And that again, it was just a lot of um, fear and, and it was always like everything you did, you felt like you were at risk of really screwing something up and getting into a lot of trouble, even if you weren't doing anything wrong. And, like, walking on eggshells for six months, like, being afraid that you could be woken up in the middle of the night and torn out of your bed by counselors with some accusation or just because they felt like it for something you didn't even understand, like, that's a pretty scary situation to live under.
2: Or because you're doing things that would be normal under normal circumstances, like experimenting sexually. Like, if, kids, if these kids were allowed to, you know, live in the real world and, you know, have still have this type of, you know, therapy or, or whatever they needed. You're now making things like this. It's maladaptive. And just like when yeah. you said, it broke my heart, you were joking around with a friend in line and you got investment. Like that's, that is a normal thing. And you were joking. Like that's to me, a good sign. You're, um, it, it tells me that, you know, you're, it's just, That's good to have that human reaction. Socializing is good. Socializing is good. And isn't that the point? You know, not you're turning people kind of like, I don't want to say antisocial, but it kind of seems like you're not fostering the right
1: things. Well, they created rules for kids that kids cannot obey.
2: And
0: shouldn't.
1: Like when you're 15, you're not going to be able to not talk like that and around your peers.
0: Right. I mean, I can barely do it now, and I'm 29. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still struggle with it. How many times in lectures and residency have I been told to shut up? Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of times.
1: Yeah. And, and you guys also know me. and I'm a very silly guy. So, like, that's how I bond with people. That's how I socialize. is by joking around and being silly. Right. I'm not like, a, it's never in an offensive way. It's never in an inappropriate way. I just like to be silly. Um,
2: yeah. And, well, I'm glad you didn't lose that. You know, I, I'm so. I'm so glad, like, it just break, this breaks my heart because I, you know, I've gotten to know you and, um, you know, these things are a part of who you are and they were. you were punished for them.
1: Well, yeah, they just, you know, they were inventing rules that they knew kids couldn't abide by so that they could screw with them. Mm-hmm. So I kind of shut down for a while there. And I remember when I got home, People were, I mean, first of all, I got home and I was in private school for a year, which was a weird situation. And then I transferred back to public high school and basically continued sleeping through school. But at that point, I was older than 16. (laughs) Uh, Did they fix my depression? No. Was I put under for years? I had this fear of what they were calling relapsing, because basically. Even though I wasn't there for drugs, they, they treated everyone like they were. They treated everyone like they were there for the same reasons. The only person who really didn't was your therapist because they knew what your actual treatment plan was and they knew what you were there for. Mine were quote unquote family issues and school issues, like losing my temper at home, sleeping through school. Um, and, like, you know, again, like I'm a pretty sensitive, self aware person and I've worked extremely hard on who I am to become that way. And a lot of that started after I got home. From PCS. Because for me, PCS was waking up into the reality of the world that you don't always have control, that there's people who will fuck with you just because they can, that people do awful things, that there are situations that you can live in where you're under a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear. And it also, you know, when I went into those programs, I was just coming out of my childhood. And I had never thought about things in this way before. Like, I had never thought, am I the same as other people? Am I different than other people? Am I at all unique? What ways am I unique? I just kind of had always assumed subconsciously that I was the same as everybody else. And going through these situations out there, I realized maybe I'm a little bit different. Not like in a necessarily a good or bad way, but maybe I'm just a little bit different than a lot of people. And then also- I used that as...
2: The same as a lot of people.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, for whatever reason, like my ability to evade some of that craziness, and I was never doped up—at least, not that I know of. So, like, I never was taking pills, um, stuff like that. Like that, a lot of the other stories the kids have include. And I just think that, like, I used to just a waking up point with myself. Like, I didn't care what the program was or what the intent of the program was or what the intent of my parents sending me there was and i remember when i was 17 like only like a year or two later telling my parents like just so you know i don't think that that i don't think that any of the good things that have come out in me since then have anything to do with that like they're because of me they're because of me working on myself they're because of me wanting to be a better person and a better version of myself and maybe going through that traumatic series of events spawned that but I definitely saw kids there who it definitely did not spawn that and I also don't think that you have to go through something like that in order to just grow up I feel like you know sleeping through school being 14 being confused I feel like that's where I was headed anyway like you can only go through those feelings for so long before you start to want to improve and figure them out and understand yourself and and adjust I think mm-hmm. I was just going through a normal teen adjustment, right. but my own version, my own version of it, and I don't think that those programs did almost anything for me. Other well, than
0: one of the survivors yeah. of, of PCS said uh, a really good quote. She said that no child deserves to be punished for expressing their feelings, especially when that punishment just equals more torture and more trauma. And I think that's like the whole message here. Yeah. Like this is not helpful in any way. Well, I think
2: the only thing it's helpful for just hearing, you know, this is the first time I'm hearing this is, um, detox. I would think that is probably the only, you know, you have, if you have a kid doing su- a child who is doing substance, or experiencing substance abuse, um, I think that this would act as like a medical detox, if you could even call it medical, because it's not monitored, and then that's it. Everything else beyond that, I think is just maladaptive.
1: Well, so I mentioned all this to my my brother, and he's like, oh, I thought like at points you had said that you had almost like had a positive outcome or experience from that. And I think that when I got home and I was processing, and, and first of all, I wanted to be the fuck out of there. So when I got home, I was like, fuck that, I'm done, right? Um, But also, I think I had a certain amount of, just honestly, I think I was in denial about some of it. Like, I think I was in denial about how some of those things were. And I think I found ways to look at some of it as though it was positive, because I don't think any kid should be abused. I don't think any kid should be put into those situations. I don't think any kid should go to a program where then they have people acting as legal guardians that will let them starve, or that will scream in their face and tell them that they're evil, or that will make them feel like if they say one wrong word that they're gonna be put in a situation where they have people screaming in their face until they snap and then they're put in a cell. Like Obviously, none of that makes any sense. But I remember thinking that like every kid that's confused, everyone on their way to adulthood, whatever point it happens for them, because a lot of my peers went through something similar when they were like, 19, 20, 21, 22, and I just went through it when I was younger. And I felt that everyone should have a chance to leave their comfort zone. Everyone should have a chance to step outside of their daily life and go somewhere and do something drastically different that lets them appreciate who they are every day and what they do every day and appreciate their family and their friends and some of the things that we all get sick of about like normal daily life I think it's important sometimes to step away from those things and and actually appreciate those things. Otherwise, we might come to view as negative just because they're repetitive or whatever. They're comforts at
2: the end of the day.
1: Yeah, like I remember trying to basically assess my experiences there as an opportunity to leave uh, without my choice, against my choice, being forced out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there's value in leaving your comfort zone. And I do think that a lot of people never do that. And I'll always think that's true. But there's way more reasonable ways to accomplish it than putting a kid in an abusive situation. And it was the 90s. Things were not as... People weren't like the internet was not where it is now. Information was not as readily available as it is now.
2: Therapy wasn't pe- as widely accepted. And I think yeah. that that's, that will take you out of your comfort zone a hundred percent. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah.
1: Well, I okay. had had therapy, but I wasn't uncomfortable with the therapy part of it. Actually. I remember my therapist at PCS. I think he was an okay guy. You know, I, I don't know if he, if he knew what, what else was going on in the program, Um, I don't think we ever really had like true KPIs and things to measure my progress and my treatment plan by, like we would sit and have conversations with my parents on the phone and my therapy sessions. And like, I don't really remember thinking that I changed or did anything differently. (laughs) I think there was a certain amount of just being scared into cooperating to a degree, you know, Mm -hmm. and wanting to leave. But I don't know. I just, I just think that If my parents had known about like Waldorf or like some of these high schools that are for creative kids or kids that solve problems differently or whatever, like more artistic, because I'm an artist. Like if there had been there, there are, I've I've met people that, you know, um, went to like an art high school and like they learned all the same things I did. They just did it through a more creative means. And my parents didn't know about those things. And if they had, that might have, that alone might have been the solution for me. And part of my whole assessment, aside from the Aspen and Provo thing, which were majorly fucked up, is that overall, the American education system doesn't have a way to deal with kids who are not willing to just bend towards that one singular path that they want everyone to go down. And I had teachers, guidance counselors, principals, friends, my friends' parents when I would go to my friend's house, my grandparents, my parents, my siblings, literally Every single person in my life was breathing down my neck about the fact that I wasn't going to school. And some people were, you know, guidance counselors at school were telling me I was going to basically be a failure and I was going to fuck up my whole life. And I had friends' parents treating me like I was like a, a bad, not a bad kid, but like, um, not, and I wouldn't necessarily say like a loser, but I feel like I remember feeling like my friends' parents didn't expect much of me. And then I remember, like, one of my good friends, when I graduated from, uh, when I got my MBA and finished graduate school, and I was at um, his house for something, and I hadn't seen his parents in a long time, and his mom was like, oh, Jonah, you got your MBA. And I was like, yeah, she's like, wow, like, thinking back to you when you were a teenager, like, who'd have ever known it? Like, stuff like that. And I'm like, I knew it. Like, I knew I could do these things. Yeah. Like, maybe Comments other people like just... Suck. <laughs> Well, she's actually a very sweet person, and I don't think she meant it in a a negative way. But she was trying to be sweet and say, like, congratulations, like, you've got things together, you've come a long way. And and she's right, I had. But, like, you know, my public school system didn't know what to do with a kid that was depressed. They only knew how to send a kid if you weren't, you know, getting the grades and going to school to progress and then go to, like, college. Like, they didn't know what to do with you. And that's where the problem started, because— if there had actually been like someone who knew what the hell they were talking about and actually had talked to me the right way and asked me the right questions, they might have figured out that I belonged at a different school that was for people that were more creative or that I just needed a different situation altogether. They, and they wouldn't have necessarily been like, well, you're either in this situation that you hate or we're going to send you to this program that treats you like crap. And I, and, I, and I honestly still believe that that's still a problem. And I met other kids in my life, some of my good friends. I have a very good friend who also had a lot of trouble in high school. And I met him at community college because at the end of high school, after sleeping through most of it, I made a deal with my principal to, um, go to take my GED and go to community college and take a certain number of courses, and he'd give me my high school diploma. And then when I was at community college, like, Based upon the culture that I grew up in, that was like where losers and idiots went. But then I was like, wow, like there's almost no losers or idiots here. It's actually a lot of kids that have the same problems as me. Mm -hmm. And like they end up in that part of the system and like that's just how it goes.
2: Right. It's just an alternate means and, you know, people then can transfer out and still go on to extremely, you know, the same careers as everybody else. It's just kind I mean, yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, there, there just really isn't. It, 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 you know, things are a lot better nowadays yeah. than they were in the 90s. But the school system is only made for kids who are... who want to follow rules and societal expectations of them. And
2: they're rewarded And if for you
0: that. are... Yeah, and if you are... And actually, by the way, once again, data suggests that if you're... Not so much that and a little more in the middle, not saying that like someone going wild and doing heroin in high school is ideal either. But if you're someone who doesn't just accept things, that shows a lot more promise for you going into adulthood and your possibility of accomplishing things and being an innovator and stuff like that. But in high school, people who are like that are... You know, really, honestly, mistreated, and like my own story is nothing like Jonah's. But I went to Christian school when I was in high school, and I was constantly into in detention, getting suspended, things like that. And I had also had a huge problem (laughs) sleeping, but I did it in the classroom versus like at home. Um, Although I would be late a lot (laughs) and things like that as well. But I just, you know, I found it so boring and. You know there was so much drama and things. You wouldn't it, believe some of it the things. Wasn't.
1: <clears throat> you wouldn't believe some of the things that I heard. Like when I went back to to school after all this, and I was sleeping through school again, and I'd go to school, like I'd show up every few weeks, and I had a psych. Actually, interestingly enough, I had a psychology teacher <laughs> that would bring me to the front of the room and yell at me for. Literally, I remember she would yell at me for the entire forty-five minute class in front of the whole class about the fact that I wasn't there. That's a great psychology teacher, right? Wait. But.
2: Wait, oh my God. I, I, this is like how we're all connected. Because when I fell asleep in class in psychology, my teacher <laughs> would bring me down to the nurse and weigh me. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean. You're suggesting that you had an eating
0: disorder yeah. or something? Yeah. Oh
1: and, and she
2: made oh, me read, out. we had to write about ourselves, like something we thought we had. And of course, I picked OCD. Um, she gave me another student's paper who wrote about having an eating disorder.
0: What the fuck? That's really fucked All up. All right, out of the well, rabbit hole, back to you.
1: <laughs> well, I was just going to say, like, I actually had teachers telling me that I hadn't... Un- so I wouldn't go to class, so I didn't do like... I was never able to hand in homework because one, I didn't know what it was, and two, I wasn't in class to hand it in. But I would know when like tests were, I would ultimately get assignments because like, every few weeks that I was there... The teacher might be like, "By the way, we have a paper due or a project due or whatever," and I would do those things. I would, and I would do a paper or a project, and I'd get like a an A or an A minus or a B plus on it, and I would do well. And then one time, I was having a conversation with my teacher, and they're like, "Yeah, but the best you can do on your report card is like a D minus because you're never in class." Even though I was like, "Yeah, but I get A's on all the things that I do," and they're like. Well, you have an unfair advantage because you're home all day. Like you can study all day, and oh, I was like, "Wait a minute!" Oh, how
2: the times have
1: changed, and, <laughs> and now like, we've
2: learned you don't need to show. Like, oh my God!
0: <laughs> we'll, well, I was like, you know, "Well,
1: I was like, why would I go to school if if everyone could do better and learn more? Why wouldn't they just stay home and study all day?" <laughs> like, what well, the hell that make?
0: That's societal too, because obviously I had. Um, Similar, I mean, I had undiagnosed ADHD in high school, so I wouldn't remember assignments or things like that, or even remember what class I was supposed to be in, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I remember in college one time my professor deducted me from an A to a B plus for missing like one too many classes or something, or being late too many times. So I escalated above her, and I got my grade switched to an A. And then in med school, um, this really terrible attending that everyone hated who taught this course she like my grade based upon all the stupid work that we had was like an a but she deducted and we didn't have a's in med school was like honors high pass pass but she deducted me down to high pass for like being 10 minutes late a couple of times so it's just it's america yeah i hate it (laughs)
1: <laughs> but is there anything else that you guys have questions about my experiences yeah. like at those programs
2: I do I wrote them down so that I wouldn't explode um, first of all Joan I, I like this breaks my heart that you went through this uh, I had no idea and I feel like an idiot that I didn't even know this was a thing that like somebody I care about could have gone through so um, I'm sorry like that's it's horrible but I kind of like how you took your, you looked at the bright side and you realized you did some self-discovery and it was very introspective for you. And that's what you got out of it. Um, I just, I guess one of my first questions was at what point when the guys came to, you know, bring you to this, to the first camp to Aspen, did you have an idea of what this was about? Um, you know, or what did you think was going on?
1: Um, I had no idea. I, I knew that my parents had tried to approach me about getting me help and sending me to like a camp or something. I, I don't remember what language was used. And at the time I was already defiant and stubborn and sad and not reacting well to that kind of communication. So I was like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. And when they had brought it up with me, they made, again, I kind of felt like it was like if I said no, then I didn't have to. Like if I was like, no, I don't need that, then I wouldn't have to go. Um, and the guys were, again, those big, strong muscle dudes were actually pretty nice to me. Like they talked to me about music the whole time. Um, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that those guys want to hurt people. I no. think they're very, they're very intimidating and they know it. And I know that some of them like bring zip ties and stuff for kids that, are, are probably bigger run risks. They picked me up at my parents' house in the in the suburbs in like a remote we lived in a neighborhood that was pretty remote. There was nowhere for me to run. So, uh I don't necessarily know that I was viewed that way. Um but I just, you know, I just I had that breaking moment once they had actually flown me to Utah, drove me out to the middle of nowhere, gave me a bunch of clothes and tarps and camping supplies drove me out into the desert stuck me with a group of people and then I learned that I was going to be there for eight weeks and it wasn't up then I learned it wasn't up to me and even at that point I did not know that any of the things that were about to happen were going to happen I didn't know the kids would be telling me that they were locked in cells at other programs or that if I didn't cooperate and behave that I would be too, I didn't know that I'd be starved. I didn't know any of that stuff, but I felt a loss of control. And I felt like, um, up until that point in my life, I had always felt if anything ever happened to me, that my parents would be there to to help, help me. And in that moment I felt like they were the ones who put me there. So it was just, again, I wasn't, mad at them I didn't know if they realized what they did or if they realized what it was and I kind of just like I was too busy living it to step back and really assess it while all like the not eating and craziness was happening I was so in the moment of what was happening that I didn't really necessarily appreciate how screwed up it was like I asked for food I wanted food. I said, give me food, I'll eat, and I'll eat it. But, like, it didn't really, you know, a 14-year-old doesn't know that it's wrong to treat a 14-year-old that way.
2: You're living it. It's now your reality. And the fact that you tried to negotiate and said, look, I'll eat your mac and cheese, just don't put spam in it, that was a healthy mechanism, or, you know, you're, you're, you're negotiating. And they punished that. To me, I mean obviously there was way like a lot more wrong with this, but I'm just, that's another thing that just stuck out to me. Like you tried.
1: Yeah. Well, they, my parents and my parents would tell them Jonah's an extremely picky eater. Like it's a serious thing. He's You're not, not
2: going to change that in eight weeks. Sorry. Yeah. You know? And my
1: parents, well, they thought that they could, but my parents mm-hmm. were like, they're like, Jonah's manipulating and he's protesting. And my parents were literally said to them, no, he's not. He doesn't eat that. He has a serious hang-up." He will, he will not eat that. He's not protesting. He's not manipulating you. My parents said that to them, and they didn't care. They think that they know better than the, the people that have raised you and known you since, since birth. Mm. And they think that they're, again, so much of this shit is about one size fits all. Like the education system that caused an issue to begin with and got me there. And then once I was there, I was treated like a troublemaking kid that I wasn't and they thought yeah. they knew my personality type and my problems better than my parents did, which is ridiculous.
2: Very big brother almost just kind of what I'm, you know, you're kind of uh minimized down to just you know what they think you should be and the their norms and values and rules are set upon you and you're punished for going against them, you know.
1: Yeah. So So, I mean, once I was there and and no one, no one at Aspen was really physical with me. Um, there was a point where like, I couldn't walk anymore, and they like literally carried me to the next campsite. Like all the kids were like carrying me, <laughs> like dragging me through the desert. And it's interesting because, like in the middle of all this unbelievable chaos and upset and fear and anxiety and starving, I'll never forget that night because they carried me to the campsite and we got there really late because of all that. And the weather out in the desert was crazy. Like it would snow. And then the next day it would be like 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And I'll never, well, first of all, like one of the first nights I was there, I woke up the next day covered in snow and my whole tarps had collapsed because they didn't actually care about helping me set it up correctly. They wanted people to like learn how to do it. So I woke up covered in snow (laughs) and then Uh, That night, where they like dragged me to the campsite and we got it, it was probably like the middle of the night, like two or three in the morning before we got there and it was nice out and um, everyone just put their sleeping bags on the desert floor and no one set up their tarps and I was like lying in the middle of the desert like hours away from light pollution or noise pollution or pollution (laughs) and looking up into the sky which is like, as much as I was used to things being dark, that's how many stars there were. So I had like this moment of peace and like beauty that I was like laying on the floor of the desert looking up into the sky into like this, like unimaginable, beautiful thing. And I like was exhausted, but I couldn't fall asleep because I was staring at the stars for so long.
0: Well, So um,
2: just well, it was my last question, but, um, and I think this is a good, you know, good for anybody out there. Are there any support groups or any Reddit group, anything that you've found to kind of connect with, um, you know, what, what would have been your peers in these programs?
1: Um, I haven't looked for like that specifically, um, I followed breaking code silence on Instagram Mm. and they're like part, they're basically trying to uncover all this and help people tell their stories. And I don't, I don't know if they have a longer term vision of like shutting these things down or trying to enact law or suing people. I don't know. Um, but I contacted them and I was like messaging them on Instagram and they asked me to submit a, a quick video. So I did. So, uh, I'll be on their social media at some point, like a video of me sitting in my apartment, going through like a five-minute version of all this crazy stuff that I've been telling you guys. Yeah. Um, And... Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I like their Instagram, and I'll link it whenever we post this episode. You know, on that note, I think, you know, my f- first response when I heard this story was like, Oh my God, like, especially in your situation, because the people who harmed you the most were the people at Aspen was like, can we sue them or something like that? But I think part of the issue is a lot of these places are shut down or they've like reestablished themselves under another name, which makes them more difficult. Yeah. To take action against. Correct.
1: Yeah. 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 And I asked my parents, I was like, this is why I was like, this is that's why I'm diabetic. And they're like, yeah, we know. And I'm like, well, why didn't we sue them? Mm. <laughs> and they're, and they're like, we wanted to, but like, we didn't. And then I saw, yeah, yeah I saw online that Aspen was shut down like in 2007 or eight or something like that. But I mean, I don't know what the statute of limitations is. I don't know how easy it is to track these people down that this happened to me 23 years ago.
2: But it's a so, lifelong. You still have diabetes, yeah. so I, I would say, well, yeah. think well
1: yeah. if
0: we have even one lawyer listener <laughs> that cares, please let us know. What especially, we can do.
1: especially if you're in Utah, because that's yeah. where all these things especially were legally you formed. Yeah.
0: Have your yeah yeah, and I think another thing that you didn't mention is um, at least Provo. I know gave you guys numbers, right?
1: Yeah. At, yeah, I keep seeing all this stuff and all the coverage of it, where people were say like, "I was this number," and I only got called by my number. Oh. Um, when I was a Provo, I was number sixty-six, and <laughs> for for years, I had like
0: so fitting. Of course, you were.
1: Of course, yeah, I was number sixty-six, and um, I had it written on the insides of all my stuff, so for even like when I got home for years after, like my I had like my parents had sent me like towels and all like my own amenities, right? So I up until I was like 30, I had these black uh, like uh, shower towels or whatever, like bathroom towels that on the tag it said 66 on them. But I got rid of those. <laughs> mm. But mostly there, like when I was there, um, on the boys campus, they called everyone mostly by their last name. Mm-hmm. So I was just, yeah. I was just bursting. Yeah.
0: I guess it just, uh, depends, you know, where people were. Cause I feel like it was a lot of the girls who were in the long-term camp who said that they were referred to as their numbers. So, I,
1: I, you know, kind, I kind of remember people in investment that the counselors, like once someone came into investment and they signed in, they signed in as their number. And I kind of remember the people in long term yelling at kids by their numbers, but again, I never ended up in long term. So, um, a lot of these stories of this crazy abuse and stuff that you're hearing is literally long term. Like you had to get in trouble, even if you didn't really do anything wrong. Right. You had to get you had to get an infraction and get sent to investment and be in long term, um, and that's where things. That was like a Putting whatever you were experiencing in the program under a magnifying glass. So basically, like a lot of the stories that you that you're reading, like, mm-hmm. yes, there was overall throughout the whole program, there was fear, there was intimidation, there was threats. You a lot of what I heard of these things was counselors talking to each other and laughing about it, laughing at a kid who basically was pushed into freaking out and then being thrown in a cell or laughing about the fact that the night before a kid got like shot up with sedatives like thinking it was funny and but so you always lived under that threat of those things could happen to you at any second if you fucked up Mm -hmm. but really from what I'm reading people talking about the whole thing is that once you're there you're a bad it's because you're a bad kid okay and if you're a bad kid that's sort of like the premise of the whole thing but if you're in the bad kid program and then you go to the bad kid part of the bad kid program, like you got in trouble to get sent to long-term uh, punishment, that's when it sounds like things went really crazy. And that's where all the crazy stories would come out of. That's when you'd hear things about like kids getting sat on by by counselors or kids getting shot up with sedatives or kids getting hit or kids getting thrown in a cell naked or whatever. Those That was long term, and I was almost—I was never in it. But the program was definitely, if not purposefully designed, to do this. Like the program was definitely, the framework was to get kids to react to things to get there. To in a lot of ways.
2: Do your parents have whatever they signed? um, Like, was there? Was this? in any paperwork? Like, was this in a contract that the counselors reserve the rights to do this, 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 and this?
1: Um, I never saw any contract. And I asked my parents last week if they had any of the stuff that they signed or any of the documentation. Mm-hmm. And my mom said she probably does. But yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't know if she was going to look for it or whatever. But no, I mean, it wasn't like if your kid misbehaves, we're going to shoot them in the ass with a sedative and put them in a cell.
2: But they have to give permission. Did, did they assume guardianship? Did the program, not you, Siri, did these programs assume guardianship because somebody has to consent for these medications?
1: I don't know what the legal framework was of that. I know that the kids that were court-ordered, the state had guardianship. hmm and that might be again why counselors didn't mess with me as much as other people because my parents, I would have, I assume, have guardianship, and
0: ah, that makes sense.
1: You can ease through all the bureaucracy and bullshit. You can probably much more easily lie to the state and say a kid misbehaved, and you and the kids like the state's like, well, we sent them there because they were misbehaving, so of course they misbehaved, um, and then keep them in the program until they're 18, extracting, you know. Fifteen or $20,000 a month out of the state. But I don't, I don't think the same thing applies when you're self-funded, which is part of what confused me, and I, and I wish I knew more about with Paris Hilton's situation, because, I mean, her parents are very wealthy, I would assume, and it doesn't sound like she was court-ordered, so it sounds like her parents funded it. And it sounds like they were probably too busy dealing with all their crazy businesses and, and social ashamed. lives and...
0: They probably just wanted her to disappear because... Well, she says that. She said they wanted to hide me away, and I begged to get out, but they kept me in there. She specifically says it's her parents. And they could also
1: afford to keep her there indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, at the time, my parents had enough money to, to pay for me to be there, but, I mean, now I'm like, oh, my God, my parents spent an insane amount of money to keep me in this program that was a, that was a scam. So, so I'll say this, like the other part, aside from like survivor's guilt and feeling like I was like a, like a hair away from having the same story as some of these people about like crazy abuse, um, which I had in a different way at Aspen, but like the PCS stuff, like, I don't know, like, I just felt had like, I consider myself, my parents to be smart people that question things and want to understand things. And I felt like my parents were scammed.
0: Well, I think that what we are going to talk about next could explain a little bit why parents, especially in the 90s, were susceptible to believing this type of lie. So let's talk about the history of the troubled teen industry. And what we should know is that there are hundreds of places like Provo still in the United States. About 50,000 kids a year end up in these types of programs, and they will essentially take any kid for any reason. They're barely overseen. They're underregulated, and they're riddled with abuse, as we all know. But as we also know from what we've talked about, there is big money in this industry, so how did this start? Well, there was a cult around 1960. Um, there was this recovery group called Synanon, and it was formed as an offshoot of the 12-step program Alcoholics Anonymous. So they used a therapeutic style of focusing on a single group member. They would berate and humiliate them. They would pick them apart they believed until they were humbled enough to grow. They were very popular. Um, there was like a big location for them in Santa Monica. And so California courts in that area would often, you know, make juvenile drug offenders attend this program. Was this, And
1: sorry to interrupt you, but was this at all attached to like Scientology? Because it reminds me of um, The Master, the movie The Master. Which is mm-hmm. about, which is basically loosely based around, the, um, I can't remember his name. Is it Philip, not Philip K. Dick? One of the, it's Like, I, I'm getting people's names mixed well, up. But the guy who started I d- I Scientology. I don't know,
0: John. John I don't something? know, but I want to be surprised because this originated in Cal, in Santa Monica, and didn't Scientology originate in the sa- I mean, I don't know offhand. I just know there's that huge Scientology building in L.A. that's blue. Um, just one of my ways too. They just put
1: one. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm yeah. sorry. I always get to mix up. It's L. Ron Hubbard. That's the guy who started it. So and, and The Master, mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays like a loose version of L. Ron Hubbard. And, yeah. Like, and like, that's what they're what? doing to Joaquin Phoenix in the movie. They're like screaming at him and insulting him and berating him and stuff.
0: Who, who Joaquin? Phoenix? Joaquin. Wh- <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. I can't pronounce. It's an things. incredible movie, though.
1: It's an incredible movie.
2: Anything that so those some two <laughs> are in, I would, I love them both.
1: It's, yeah, it's Paul, yeah, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, which is, like, one of my favorite directors. But, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> so I interrupted.
0: Some of, the, some of the methods they would use here would be uh, shaving everyone's heads, splitting up couples that came in together. You must recouple with someone else. There was forced sterilization, forced abortions. And the therapy involved actual beatings that often resulted in hospitalizations. So... Naturally, members were afraid to leave. Eventually, LAPD got involved and it collapsed. But those involved went on to start their own programs, including the very first outdoor wilderness programs and, quote, therapeutic boarding schools. An example, obviously, is Provo. And they utilized these concepts they learned in the cult to, quote, fix teens. So why were these allowed to exist? Well, there were close political ties with the leaders um, who profited from the programs. For example, creators of two of the original schools raised $25 million for Bush Sr.'s campaign. They were major donors to the Republican Party, which was um, the party that was, you know, essentially in control of America at that time.
1: And the war on drugs. And
0: Yes, so as paranoia about the war on drugs and teen delinquency rose in the U.S. under Reagan, parents were gripped with fear over their actually normal teens, because statistically during this time period, teen drug use was actually declining, and specifically Nancy Reagan sang praises for these programs and the need for, quote, tough love on delinquent kids. So the industry grew exponentially into the 1990s. And in the worst cases, they were places that had kids kept in dog kennels, um, beaten, obviously subjected to inhumane treatment, like being forced to eat their own vomit Mm -hmm. or being raped. And as we have already discussed, when these places would get closed down, leaders often just open another place under a different name. So there's been minimal reform throughout the years, although they have, I'd say, um, they're not as popular as they used to be. And overall, there are 30 documented deaths from the wilderness program. So, you know, you might think that when Jonah shares his story, well, at least he didn't die. But if he had gotten to that point, it's not like they were doing anything to prevent it. Like he could have easily died from what he tells in his story.
1: Like you very, can't very easily.
0: Yeah, very very easily. You're also because you're also like,
1: their fault. Even in an emergency, like it took two hours or three hours for someone to get out into the desert to get you to get to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like when I hearing when I first watched the documentary, and I was first re-examining I guess Jonah's story with him it was really like very so I didn't know about the trouble like I knew about these programs and I remember hearing about them when I was young myself But I guess the most shocking part of this was finding out that they still exist, number one. And number two, the extent of everything that occurred in them. Because I'm obviously in psychiatry. um, Although I'm in an adult residency, I work a ton with adolescents. My program has built into it because we have a child adolescent hospital and a fellowship at our program. It has built into our actual requirements, like a ton of time, like in clinics and inpatient and stuff. And then on my own, I moonlight like 20 hours a month at least with teens in psychiatry. So I know a lot. And I guess I'd never, I thought, I don't really, like at least in my exposure, I don't see that we would ever, ever recommend that kids go to a place like this. And how we treat, children or teens with mental health issues well first off the way we frame it we generally see that teens are responding to their environment and that when you are a teenager whatever genetic component you have for mental illness has often not been like triggered yet so generally behavior is not so much as a result of mental illness as it is a result of maybe not knowing how to cope with the family situation you're in or the stressors that you're being put under. And what we provide, like, on, for example, like, an inpatient psych unit, like, kids get to request what diet they want, and they get that. And you would be very concerned if someone was under eating. Um, You know, you definitely don't berate anyone. You know, you perhaps even hold your tongue a little more than you should because you want to give teens especially a positive environment in which they can improve and not like cause further harm. Whereas like with an adult patient, you might be pretty direct and let them know potentially how they're contributing to their own issues. But with teens, um, sometimes, especially if they're younger, you wouldn't even take that approach. And certainly not do things like call them manipulative or whatever, especially when there's literally no evidence for that. So, and also like there's, I think there's a lot more options for schooling now. Mm-hmm. Like tons of teens are on homebound, um, and get to just because you know school is making their mental health worse, they get to do homebound, which is sometimes there's like a, someone who comes to their home, or sometimes saw online and i think in the 90s there might have been a lot of different laws about this like i think in some states you might literally uh, certainly these programs didn't exist then but even like homeschooling i think might have been illegal in some states i'm not totally sure about that too i would think yeah because... and it was definitely super stigmatized as like not healthy for anyone when really it is healthy right. for a lot of people right. considering and you know like even today like kids get Bully at school they get beat up and there's no repercussions for the offenders like you know when you're an adult and you're in an adult world if someone assaults you generally you at least have a good shot of getting some consequences for the individual and not having to be you know exposed to them in the future but still you know teens will tell me about how they're having horrible treatment at school or something like that but in general, you know, you just provide a really positive, validating environment while still trying to figure out, you know, how are the parents contributing to this? Which usually it's, like, totally the parents. That's honestly just how it is. Um, or, but, like, you know, how can we hopefully help this teenager develop better coping skills? Like, for example, um, you know, and Jonah, when in his story, he wasn't really... I don't think anything he was doing was wrong. I think in today's society, I hope that he would just be put on homebound and allowed to like, be allowed to work from home, and that would work better for him or something like that. But like, you know, the kids I see, a lot of them are cutting or doing more uh, dangerous behaviors. So you hope to help them develop some better coping skills than that. And I guess some more thoughts and going back to like family dysfunction. There's an author that most people in the psych field are pretty familiar with. His name is John Bradshaw, and he's just written like a gazillion amazing books. And he has one book um, called Family Secrets. And in that, he specifically touches on how, you know, teens' behavioral issues uh, are often due to their dysfunctional families. Like, for example, like a teenager might be bulimic and... The family will think the teen is the issue, but really this is the teen's reaction to what's going on at home, and there's probably well, oftentimes the parents are really the issue. It's
1: interesting you say that because I honestly believe that a large reason why my parents were willing to put me in this program is their own guilt because Mm
0: -hmm.
1: prior to me sleeping through freshman year of high school— we had had like a really tumultuous few years in my family where we were building a house and we were in a temporary situation living at my grandparents' house and my parents were having issues in their relationship and there was like a good like nine or 10 months where like they were basically out every night of the week from like five o'clock till midnight Doing whatever that they were doing, whatever they were doing, trying to fix their relationship, and like, I was um, in like seventh grade or whatever, seventh or eighth grade, and my brother was in like fourth grade, so maybe I was in sixth or seventh, I forget. But um, yeah, seventh and eighth, my brother was in like fourth or fifth grade, my sister was in like sophomore year of high school or something, and like we just got in They were were getting, we were getting into trouble, and we were like just had this crazy thing happen in our family where like my parents disappeared and no one knew what was going on. And me and my brother and sister each had our own reactions to it. And I think they perceived that what I was doing was my reaction to it. And maybe to some degree it was, but like, I still, to this day, I think it was mostly something that would have happened to me either way. Um, But I think my parents felt responsible for that. And I think that they felt guilty and I think they felt like, and I feel like their guilt was basically taken advantage of
0: yeah and even if like you know, it still would have happened anyways, well, I do think that specifically, when we look at young people, they usually have to have significant triggers to have mental illness. Like if they're in an ideal environment, they usually won't have symptoms of that. It doesn't generally come out fr- like from a genetic perspective obviously there are rare exceptions until late late teens would be when these things would actually come out but you know symptoms come out in earlier teens and childhood and things like that I think it is a direct result of being in it an, and in, at the very least a dysfunctional environment whether it's their family or their school or something like that so another thing that John Bradshaw states is that any witness to violence is a victim of violence. And I think this is something to think about like so if someone goes to Provo and they're not necessarily experiencing high levels of abuse themselves, you know, more on the mild spectrum of things, but you're if you're witnessing someone else getting sexually assaulted that that makes you somewhat of a victim as well like it does affect you there is secondary trauma and this is a documented thing when you experience someone else um experiencing trauma and one thing that bradshaw states can happen as a result of all this is he states When our natural shame, which guards our privacy and the unique dignity of our self, is violated, we take on a false, pretend self that is shameless. And this is actually how, like, narcissism develops. So if we're gonna, if people are gonna go ahead and label Paris Hilton a narcissist and discount her abuse, well, maybe the narcissistic traits that you're noticing actually developed as a result of what she experienced. And something else to note that Bradshaw says is once we become shame-based, we believe that we are a mistake. We feel that our very being is flawed and defective, and we must be secretive about everything in our lives that is authentic. And going back to Jonah saying that he was perhaps in denial when he left Provo, um, I just want to point out that denial can serve a purpose because if we acknowledge that we experience abuse or trauma in some way, we often acknowledge that we don't have full control over our lives and what we experience and that we could potentially experience these things. And often the realization of that is causes people to decompensate. It causes you to experience like, you know, a lot of negative emotions and things like that. So sometimes it's actually easiest to just believe that something wasn't as bad as it was. And I do think that in Jonah's story specifically, the reason why, even though all this horrible stuff happened to him, it the reason why it hasn't maybe affected him as much as some of the other people from an emotional perspective is because the one thing that is different in his story than a lot of these other teen stories is he has a very secure attachment with his parents. He believes that his parents love him and he loves his parents and that makes a huge difference in any like any experience that someone can face in life and obviously we discuss that a lot in our attachment episode but I just think it's something to point out. But that's all I have to say. So thank you for this consult, Jonah. Unless anyone else has anything else to say. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story, Jonah.
1: Yeah, my my final sentiment is the, the therapist in Aspen named Devin. I don't remember his last name, but if you're listening, fuck you. And I about it.
0: <laughs> fuck you, Devin. <laughs> fuck you, Devin.